Good morning. Welcome to Bethel. You guys can have a seat. Everybody doing all right? Yeah. Mike Six. There you go. All good right. Awesome. Good to see you guys this morning. It's good to be here. So. After uh, a couple months of being gone. Yeah, I haven't seen you guys be, this year. How's it feel to be back on uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> So some health updates for Christy. She had her second round of chemo on Tuesday. Um, there's a few days of prednisone that are kind of kick her rear. And so uh, she, every day is kind of like, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do today? Today she woke up and said she felt good enough to come. And uh, so she, here she is. Here I, um, I told her that she could not go out and hug people. Yes. So that's my fault. She's going to be <laughs> back hiding away in between services. But uh, it's really good to see you here, Christy. And, and uh, we're, all, we're all rooting you for guys. you. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. You guys don't know how much it means to just have you guys on my side through it all. It means a lot. Support. Yeah, it's awesome. So um, if you're visiting with us today, I'm Christy, and this is Ray, and we are so glad that you're here um, with us today, whether you're online or in person. We would love to connect with you. And the easiest way to do that is to go to mybethel.cc connect, and there's a form there where you can just fill out some information. If you're in the house, the seat back in front of you has a QR code, and we really just want to reach out to you and see how we can better serve you. Yep. So we have a special uh, guest this morning that we want to introduce. I don't know if anybody has dealt with any kind of anxiety in the last couple years, nah. maybe. What about 2020? Did that bring about any kind of anxiety for <laughs> Not anybody? Not at all, right? Um, I was talking to Christy. I think if no one was, if you weren't anxious, 2020 kind of brought it on, right? Right. Homeschooling like, your kids and doing Zoom meetings and making sure that the Zoom Being at home with your spouse. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Seriously, I don't seriously. Know. Uh, so, but anxiety is something all of us deal with. And, and when we look through scripture, scripture talks about it in different kind of ways. And, and Jesus, when he came, he actually has an answer uh, to the anxiety problem with the gospel. Uh, today we have a real good friend of ours, Steve Cuss. He has, we, we actually met him online uh, on a podcast in 2020. And uh, in 2020, we were kind of isolated at home and we heard this uh, podcast and I said, man, this guy's got some divine wisdom. And so I began sharing it with my friends and family, bought his book and began reading the book. And it's been very um, inspirational because I'm convinced that God brings the church what the church needs at the time the church needs it. And, and God saw fit in Steve's lives years ago to begin developing him for this time and for this season. And so today we get to hear uh, from Steve Cuss. Um, he's been a blessing to our personal life. Right. Um, he's been a blessing um, in our church already. Um, and I think you're going to really enjoy him. Uh, I was going to try to do an Australian accent, to, but that would probably be so offensive. It would just be so offensive, so I'm just going to skip it. Oh, you should try. Just no, go for no. it. Good day, mate. I don't know. I, I'm going I'm to skip it. But so, yeah, so we're super excited to, um, to have with us today Steve Kess, and he's going to help us talk about anxiety and what the gospel has to say about it. So let's get started, guys.
good morning, Bethel community. It's such a, a privilege to be with you. Uh, and just uh, Ray and Christy, as many as you, of, of you have as well, we've been praying for them as well on this journey. And also, of course, Reuben and Jordan, who lead around here. And, uh, you know, you never know what to expect when you come to a church, but when you have a five-string bass player, that's usually the sign <laughs> that this is going to be a fantastic church experience. So, um, yeah, a treat, a treat to be with you. Let me just get a couple of things out of the way. My last name is Cuss, and there's nothing any of us can do about that. It's just, <laughs> it's just what it is. Uh, it's the name I was born with. I, I was born in Western Australia. I live in the Denver, Colorado area now. Uh, but I was born in Australia, and Cuss has no meaning at home. And it was a bit of a shock. I, I moved from the beach culture of Perth to Appalachian, Tennessee. I went to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where I went to college. A slight culture change. Um, they say there's more Baptists than people in Tennessee. So I've, I've found that to be true. And uh, what I want to just talk to you about just as we start is I think most of us experience a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. I just think that's a normal part, particularly those of us who are followers of Christ. But even if you're not a follower of Christ, maybe somebody has invited you today or maybe you're on your own spiritual quest and you're wondering, you know, what is this thing? Like those people who are Christians, they make it look like it's easy or is there a trick? I, I think most of us who would be honest as Christians would say, no, we experience a gap as well between what we believe and what we encounter. I believe God loves me but I don't necessarily always feel it. Um, I believe God's with me, but I don't always see it. And then for many of us, particularly those of us who've been followers for a while, I think the third gap would be, I just thought I'd be further along by now. You know, like, I just thought I'd be better at this Christian thing than I really am. Uh, for me, in my life, I've ex I struggled to experience the love of God for most of my adult life. I believe it. In fact, I have bet my life on it. I believe that the heartbeat of the universe is love, that the center and the core of existence is a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, but also all-loving. I believe that. But uh, in the wonderful words of the man who begged for a healing, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I just struggle to encounter it. If I really want to look at my actual beliefs, it's not just what I say or what I read in Scripture. One of the ways you can look at your actual beliefs is your behavior and your thinking patterns. And if I look at my behavior and if I look at the way I think, what I actually believe is God loves me generically. Uh, there's, you know, billions of humans on the planet and God's job is to love us. And so I'm generically loved because it's God's job, not particularly loved, not specifically loved, not fearfully and wonderfully made, for example. Those of you who are fans of the musical Les Miserables, I'm like Prisoner 24601, and I struggled to experience the particular and specific love of God for me. Even as a pastor, when I get up and share the love of God with others in a way that can move them, it was a, a battle for me. Uh, this began in my life when I was a trauma chaplain after I went to college in, um, in Knoxville, Tennessee. I, I went to a Bible college, and, and you may or may not know this about a Bible college, but uh, when you go, they give you a Bible entrance exam. It's to figure out how much Bible does this kid know. And I was not raised in the church. To this day, none of my family except my sister and I are believers. And I'd only been a believer 
I think it was five, five and a half years when I actually went off to go into ministry. So I had no Bible knowledge at all. I got 21% on my Bible entrance exam. Like that's worse than an F. For those of you who, who follow, like that's worse than an F. I could not successfully put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the correct birth order. But I went to Bible college and it was this incredible small community of students who were, who were deeply hungry for Jesus of professors that not only taught us amazingly, but also really cared for us. And so it was kind of a, I wouldn't say bubble, because I don't mean to have a negative connotation. It was a wonderful experience. But going from that to my first job out of uh, Bible college, I was a trauma chaplain in uh, University of Tennessee Hospital. And my job was to meet people in the worst moments of their life. I was 24 years of age. My job was to help people die as they were dying. And then if I wasn't helping someone die, sometimes I would walk in right after someone had died. And then, of course, my job was to help the loved ones and the family navigate the worst moment of their life. And when that wasn't what I was doing, I was giving people some of the worst news they'd ever heard. Uh, when you think about hospital chaplaincy, you don't typically call a chaplain just to, be, just to hang out. Just to say, hey, do you want to grab lunch? Let's have the chaplain come and grab. No, it's always when people are at the end of their rope. And so there I was, 24. I had not been a Christian very long. I had this kind of safe bubble experience in college and then this onslaught of grief and trauma and death. And the challenge for me was I would be paged. Um, kids, you can ask your parents later at home, but we used to carry these things before we had a small television in our pocket before we had the TV in our pocket, we used to carry this thing called a pager or a beeper on our belts. And children, you can ask your parents later what that is. But I used to be paged several times a day into a hospital room where somebody would beg me to beg God for a miracle. Like sometimes a dozen times a day, begging me to beg God for a miracle. And the fact is, in the year that I was a chaplain, I did experience miracles. No question. I would sit with a doctor, sometimes the doctor was a believer, sometimes not, and the doctor would say to the, the family, we can't explain it, it's gone. But, but most of the time, that wasn't the case. Now, uh, if you have a loved one and you're begging God for a miracle, I think that's a very good thing to do. Uh, as a pastor, I've spent a lot of my time as a pastor begging God for miracles as well. I have no problem when people beg God for a miracle. I don't think God has a problem with it either. In fact, I think God welcomes it and invites it. I think the problem is that as human beings, we always want one miracle more. We just want one more than we have. I get it. And so day after day, after begging God for a miracle over and over again and being let down, people dying or people getting worse... It, it hurt. I, I wasn't used to it. And so I, I, I couldn't say this at the time. I, I, I don't think I could really help put words to it at that age, but I started to build like a Teflon layer around my heart. Just the simple idea that if I never get my hopes up, God can't let me down. Uh, there's a wonderful 1980s punk Christian rocker named Steve Taylor. If you're a fan of Steve Taylor in the room, we're already friends. Like that's, that's just it. We, we know a lot about each other. Steve Taylor had this song in the 1980s that said, since I gave up hope, I, I started to feel much better. And, and I think that was me. But the fact is, you cannot experience love if you have Teflon guarding your heart about what gets in, if you're no longer vulnerable. 
Now, also when I was a chaplain, I was introduced to this thing called systems theory. This is kind of what Ray and Christy were talking about, what I'm now more known for with my book uh, that I wrote a couple of years ago. Systems theory focuses on a specific form of anxiety called chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety is different than trauma, it's different than grief, it's different than the kinds of anxieties that require psychiatric medicine. Those are all types of anxieties, those are different forms of anxiety than the chronic anxiety that I study. And by the way, may I just say, as a pastor, if you or a loved one require medicine to manage your anxiety, you're under the care of a medical doctor or a psychiatrist, I just want you to hear from me as a pastor, I think that's an absolute gift from God. I think medicine is a gift from God. Psychiatric medicine can be a gift from God. Your local friendly neighborhood psychiatrist, although let's face it, some of them aren't friendly. They're just strange people. But they're very helpful, very helpful at what they do. And it's a gift from God. And it, has, it, it is not a comment on your faith. If you need medical help, that does not mean that you do not have faith. In fact, some people who struggle with things like manic depression and bipolar and things like that, you have tremendous faith. Your dependence on God is inspiring and amazing. It takes tremendous courage and faith. But my field is called chronic anxiety, and chronic anxiety is fascinating because it's built on assumptions. That's what generates it. Assumptions. Assumptions that we have about ourselves. Assumptions that we have about how other people will treat us. And assumptions that others place on us. And, and when, you, when your assumptions are violated or broken, this thing shows up called chronic anxiety. This is why it's so fascinating. It's actually a scientific thing. Chronic anxiety is the only anxiety that's contagious. Think about it. Grief is not contagious. If you are in the room with a grieving person and you're getting anxious, it's not because you've caught their grief. It's because you have violated or you are not living up to an assumption you have about yourself. Maybe the assumption is, I should know how to make it better. Uh, maybe the assumption is, I, I should know what to say. And because you don't know how to make it better and you don't know what to say, now you're filled with this thing called chronic anxiety. So chronic anxiety is best understood as reactivity. Reactivity. And some of us, when we get reactive, we get bigger. <laughs> and some of us get smaller. So depending on your personality, some of us get a little aggressive. We raise our voice. We dominate. We, we stop listening to learn and we start listening to fix or listening to defend. That's the sign that you're chronically anxious. Ladies, if you've ever had a man mansplain to you, first of all, sorry. <laughs> and secondly, that's the evidence that he's anxious. It helps a little bit, doesn't it? Just a little bit. When a man tells you something you already know, mansplaining, it's a sign of anxiety. Now, in my life, I typically get bigger. Now, occasionally I get smaller, but there was just a few months ago, I was flying back from Chicago, O'Hare Airport, which is where the devil lives, if I may. <laughs> oh, it's a, Oklahoma Airport is a lovely airport. The Chicago O'Hare Airport is a terrible place to, to be a human being. And so I was there, and my, the flight before had gotten cancelled. I'd gotten to bed very late, gotten up really early, low sleep. I don't say that to make an excuse, but when we landed in Denver, my home, I was on row 34 of 37 because they'd put me on, my flight had got cancelled, they put me on another plane. And the family behind me, 
bolted up the aisle ahead of their turn. Like the seatbelt goes off and they don't wait their turn. Now my assumption is, my expectation is, my false belief is, all of these things generate anxiety, my false belief and my assumption is that I will always be courteous to you and you will always be courteous to me and you will always be courteous to the people around me and when that doesn't happen, I get bigger. So I'm not proud of what happened next. The first family member bolts up the aisle and I turn into Gandalf. I stick my arm into the aisle. Like, I don't say these words, but it's like, none shall pass, right? And I block the family from coming up the aisle. And I turn around and very condescendingly say, I thought I was being courteous, but it, as I reflect back on it, and as the Holy Spirit maybe had a word to me about it, it was quite condescending. And I, I said, look, we're all trying to get off this plane. Let's all just wait our turn. And they invited me to have a relationship with my mother that I would never dream of having. I couldn't even fathom doing that. And it didn't end well at all. Now, okay, we get off the plane and I'm full of rage. I'm full of rage. Why am I so full of rage? Because I didn't get what I believed I needed in the moment. I didn't get their courtesy. They violated my sense of justice. I became judge and jury, which is what the Bible calls self-righteous. And in that moment, I'm no longer depending on the righteousness of Christ. I'm no longer resting in the grace of God. I'm taking the world on my own. That's the sign you know I'm chronically anxious. Assumptions, expectations, false beliefs, and uh, false needs and so uh, all, all human beings, we have any one or more of five core false needs or false beliefs. Here they are. Control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people, and approval. There they are on the screen for you. Now, if you're married or if you come with a family member, this game is much more fun to play when you're diagnosing someone else than yourself. But the idea is to see if you can find yourself on the screen. Control. You know, some of you... You just, for example, you just really struggle if you don't already know the outcome. So when you go into a meeting, you've already committed in your heart six scenarios. You've played them out. You're ready. No matter what happens, I'm ready. Some of you even blame your military training for this. You say, well, we were taught in the military, always be prepared to be, yes, that's true. But there's something going on when you're not in control. Uh, really, the best thing for you to do is to volunteer in the toddler ministry. That's a great place... <laughs> for control freaks to learn to lower your anxiety. Uh, perfectionists, some of you who are perfectionists, where, those of you in the room with me right now, where's my perfectionist? You can, it's okay. You didn't put your hand up quite perfectly, but it's not bad, <laughs> not bad. That was pretty good. You You know you're a perfectionist because you've never, ever looked at your work and said, that was really well done, ever. You always say, well, here's how I could do it better. Someone compliments you, and you either correct them verbally or maybe you know that that's not helpful, so you just correct them in your heart, and Jesus says, same thing. Jesus says, if you've corrected someone in your heart, you've already committed it. That's the same sin. Um, always knowing the answer. This is me. This is one that I struggle with. If somebody somewhere asks someone a question, I must have the answer. I just, I always felt stupid as a kid. And so I've overcompensated my whole life by knowing. And when I don't know, I get anxious. My kids are all old, they're 21, 18, and 15, and they all have smartphones, which is to say they have the world's knowledge in their pocket. 
Now, when they don't know something, do you think they pull the world's knowledge out of their pocket? No. They ask their dad. Now, what does their dad do? Do you think their dad would be a good dad who would say, you know what, you have the world's knowledge in your pocket. Why don't you check it for yourself? Because that would actually equip them to face the world when dad's not around. But no, dad doesn't do that. Dad pulls out my own smartphone and Googles it (laughs) in front of them. Why is that? Because our chronic anxiety infects each other. We catch it off each other. And I have subtly and subconsciously trained my children to feed into my need to know the answer. Isn't that crazy? Always being there for people. Some of you, if you know that somebody somewhere is suffering, you have this overwhelming impulse to bake a lasagna. Like, like they're, they're lactose intolerant. They can't have dairy, but there you are baking a lasagna. Like, there's just, you need to be needed. And you think it's about that person. You don't realize it's about fulfilling a chronically anxious need in your own life. I have to be somebody who's there for others. No one, I don't need help. I'm the one that helps others. And of course, approval. Uh, I'm the back three of these five. uh, Having the answer, always being there for people, and approval. I need you to like me for me to be okay. Uh, If you want to watch me get anxious in real time, I'll be out at the book table after the service. If you'd like to buy a book, I'll be happy to help you there. And all you can do is say, that was a really disappointing sermon. And you'll watch me in real time, like have a physiological reaction. (laughs) Now, you can imagine as a chaplain how helpful it was to understand the spread of anxiety because when I was in a room with a grieving person and I didn't know what to do, I would believe in the moment the false belief that my job was to do something. And then I would say something stupid. So I could shrink their pain down to a size I could control. Rather than what God was calling me to do, which was to enter into the world of pain. And to learn how to be present to God and to another human being in the worst suffering of their life. And to attend. Isn't isn't this what we do as followers of Christ? To attend to the goodness of God in the midst of every situation. Okay, so as I dug into systems theory, assumptions, expectations, false beliefs, I got really excited because I'm a preacher of the gospel. And if chronic anxiety is built on false belief, and the gospel, like Jesus said, you can know truth and truth can set you free. I got so excited to spend my life studying systems theory and theology together to try to figure out how can we encounter the love and the truth of God in a deeper way? How can we let the gospel infect our false beliefs? So let's talk about the gospels just for a few minutes. And when I say the gospels, I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, if you do want to pick one of those to read, read Mark, because it's the shortest. Those of you who like to make progress, you'll feel better about your Bible study reading Mark than the others. No, but I'm talking about the gospels as in our beliefs, our beliefs. Now, those of us in the room who are followers of Christ, we say we believe in Jesus, and of course we do. I'm not suggesting you don't believe in Jesus. I'm simply suggesting that you and I believe in a lot of things. We subscribe to a lot of Gospels, and one of the most powerful things you can do is to start to figure out what Gospels you believe in. Because every Gospel offers a path and a promise. That's how you know it's a Gospel. It offers a path and it offers a promise. It says, do this thing, get this thing. That's also every television commercial ever, in a sense, if you think about it, is a mini gospel. 
And so there's Gospels all around us. There were different Gospels when Jesus walked the earth. There was actually, uh, in the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, there was a thing, and it was called a Gospel. I don't know if you know this, but the Gospel, the word Gospel, was a political word before it was a religious word. The Roman Empire, the ones that came up with it. And they said, there's a great Gospel, and his name is Caesar Augustus. Isn't this crazy to us now? But back then, Caesar Augustus had the Gospel, the good news. If you walk this path, you got this promise, and the promise was called the peace of Rome. The problem is very, very few people ever got it, and most of the people had to sacrifice so much so that others could get it. A path and a promise. Start thinking about, for example, the gospel of financial security. How much money do you need to have in the bank for you to relax? The answer to that question, there's a gospel underneath there. Uh, Australia, the country I came from, we have a gospel. Of course, America has a gospel, the American dream, a path and a promise. I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and before that, I was living for what I would call the gospel of 1980s Aussie teenagers. Now, let's face it, everyone, the 80s was the best decade to be raised in, if, if for no other reason than the band In Excess. I mean, I think you could make a case that the band In Excess, I'll also give you the Eurythmics, that's acceptable too, fantastic music in the 80s, but as an 80s teenager, there was a gospel to living right. The promise was popularity, which I think at a deeper level was fitting in or belonging. And the path, what you had to do to get that was make a girl laugh, be good at academics, and be good at sports. And of course, in the words of the late great Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad. But if you can get all three, you're golden. Make a girl laugh, good grades, good at sports. All three means you belong. All three means you fit in. All three means you don't go home and replay everything in your mind and question how you'll ever feel like you fit. And for those who like to keep score, I was zero for three in the teenage gospel. And I was feeling very lost and alone when Tony, my older sister, introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tony had become a Christian a couple of years before, and she was the only person in our extended family to be a follower of Jesus. You know, the Bible talks about people who are not followers of Christ, and it uses this adjective, lost. And uh, I understand, I've had some friends tell me, friends who are not followers of Christ, they'll say, that's a pejorative term, like that's an insult to me that I'm lost. All I can tell you as somebody who was previously lost is I just found it very descriptive. I didn't find it insulting as a teenager. I was like, that's what I am. I don't know how to navigate this world. And therefore, the discovery of being found by the God of the universe was life-changing for me. But chaplaincy and pain and Teflon around my heart, it started to pay a price. And I stopped being vulnerable. And I stopped reaching out to God. I want to move now, just as we wrap up, to talk about the gospel of the way we think. If chronic anxiety is built on assumptions, that means that we have assumptions about ourselves and how we must be for the world to be okay and for us to be okay and how others must treat us. And what's interesting about the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is there's even inside the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, there's this little fellow, sometimes it's a man, sometimes it's a woman, called the inner critic. Do you have an inner critic? 
the inner critic in your mind that when you don't live up to your own standards, when you don't do one of the big five, for example, when I don't have the answer or perfectionist, when you don't do it perfectly, that's when your inner critic starts to speak up. And one of the surprising things I discovered as I was chasing the love of God in my own life is the false gospel of my inner critic, the story I tell myself, and how much I'm giving my life to it and how little I'm letting God infect it. I was raised in a great family, 1970s and 1980s parenting, what I call saliva-based parenting. So like, for example, when I come in maybe from playing outside and I had a scratch on my knee and my knee was bleeding and I go to my mom and I'd say, I'm, I have to have a Band-Aid, I think I'm dying. I was a minor hypochondriac as a kid. Uh, my mother subscribed to the, the saliva-based parenting. Oh, you'll be fine, go back out and play. And, and so what happened in, in being raised in a family like that is, is the idea, the story I tell myself that others have it worse than me and whatever I'm going through, it's not that bad. Others have it worse and it's not that bad. If you want to have a deeper encounter with the love of Christ, you have to be willing to do the uncomfortable work of thinking about the way you think and testing your assumptions because assumptions is what generates chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety is what's based on false beliefs. So if you can learn to think about the way you think and test your assumptions, you can have a deeper encounter with the gospel of Jesus. And so this idea that others have it worse and it's not that bad. Now, here's what's interesting about this. That's true in my life. Pretty much anything I go through, there's always somebody that has it worse than me. And whatever I'm going through as a general rule, it's usually not that bad. The problem is, when you operate out of those assumptions, you don't ever approach God for anything. Even now, I've been doing this work on, on my own experience of the love of God. I've been doing this work for almost 10 years now, of, of actively engaging the particular love of God for me. But even now, a friend of mine will reach out and say, Steve, how can I pray for you? And I'll always look over my shoulder at somebody that I can tell them to pray for. It's very uncomfortable for me to say, well, here's where I need prayer. Over the course of my life, I started to build this unintentional self-sufficiency, which is what the Bible calls self-righteousness. I never approached God for a need. And you cannot receive the particular love of God for yourself if you're never coming to God in need. What message does your inner critic send to you? And how would you describe it to someone? If you had to say the message of your inner critic, when you don't live up to your expectations, your assumptions, what does it tell you? Uh, one of the messages my inner critic says to me is it, it kind of leans on its back foot and it crosses its arm and it's very condescending and it says, you should know better by now, buddy. You should know better by now. Whatever it is, whatever I did, you should know better by now. And then sometimes when my inner critic is really going to town, I remember one time I was fly fishing. You know, when I moved to Colorado, I realized it would be a sin to live in Colorado and not fly fish. It's bad stewardship. So I picked up fly fishing. And I remember being knee-deep in a trout stream, and I can see the trout are feeding. They're feeding. And everyone around me is catching. And I'm trying every fly, every depth, every presentation, and I cannot catch a trout. And my inner critic says, see how stupid you are? You're so stupid, you're not even smarter than a stupid fish. <laughs> no. That was 2016. That wasn't that long ago. 
was not that long ago. What does Uranocritic send? And then if you had the bravery, maybe you're in a midweek community here at Bethel, maybe you're part of a, a small group. What would it be like for you to actually take turns in your small group and share with each other the message of Uranocritic? Get it out. Because what chronic anxiety does is it has a gospel and it says it's all on you. Work on it on your own. Keep it secret. But what the Bible calls confession, getting it out. And then what the rest of the group would do is they would write down the description. So like as I said, you should know better by now and you're so stupid you're not even smarter than a stupid fish. You might write down harsh or condemning or unrelenting, something like that. And now that you have the adjectives of your inner critic, you have clarity on the gospel that you're living for. Harsh, unrelenting, unforgiving. And having gotten clarity on thinking about the way you think and understanding the message you tell yourself, now you're ready to hear the one true gospel. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And He knows everything. Now, our, our inner critic is right there when John talks about when we are in the presence of God, there is a way to set our hearts at rest. Even when our hearts are condemning us, there's the inner critic. John says, God is greater than our hearts. And God knows everything. Now, I understand in a room like this, I'm probably the only person in this room, maybe there's a couple of us, who are queen saluters. Most of you, you like to dump tea in a harbor. There's a couple of us that we like to salute the queen. And so the queen, this may sound strange to you, but the queen of England is my sovereign. She, I know that's weird, but she's my sovereign. And if she were to ever summon me to Buckingham Palace, I would go. And, and there's a certain decorum. When you walk in and meet the queen, you just don't start blabbering your mouth. You don't mansplain to the queen, for example. You wait, and the queen of England gets the first word, and she gets the last word. That's the rules. Now, God is our sovereign, yours and mine. And God gets the first word, and God gets the last word. And what I noticed with my inner critic is I was giving my inner critic the final word. I was saying to God, I know you say I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, but I believe that I'm just generically loved. I was putting my opinion of myself over God's opinion of me. And one of the ways I live by faith now is I actively choose on a day-to-day -day basis to believe what God says about me over and above what I say about myself. And that's hard to do. So, you know, when Jesus says, uh, God knows the very number of hairs on your head, let's face it, first of all, for some of us, that's an easier job for God than others. Let's just get that out. Reuben, God can, God can just take a glance, and God's like, I know that number. Whereas for some of us, he's like a monkey. He's like, oh, there's a lot of them, right? When God says that even when you're in your mother's womb, I knit you together, I knew you by name. Which one's telling the truth? Which one's the good news? I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation. He says, this is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts, and He knows more about us than we do about ourselves. The problem with my inner critic 
I tried to fire it several years ago and it kept showing up to work. I'm like, I fired you. He's like, yeah, I'm still here. And that's when I realized the movie Office Space had a character named Milton. And Milton would show up to work after he was fired, but they relegated him to the basement. And I realized the problem was I was giving the, the inner critic the corner office of my brain, the best real estate of my brain. So you can't stop your inner critic from showing up. He or she's going to keep showing up. It does help to name it. I've named mine Milton because it's a funny name with apologies to anyone whose name is Milton. Uh, but you don't have to give it the corner office of your brain anymore. What would your life look like if you gave your sovereign king the best real estate of your brain and you relegated your inner critic to the basement? Your inner critic is going to speak, but it no longer gets the first and last word. So as we close, I'm just going to invite us to pray a prayer. We'll have it on the screen here. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? That's the gospel exchange. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and just give you some time of quiet to fill in the blank for yourself. What if I were at least as blank to myself? What's the blank for you? Lord, what if I was at least as kind to myself as you are? What if I were at least as loving of myself as you are, as patient with myself? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Thank you, Jesus. You guys have a seat. I do, how many of you feel like we were just getting started, like barely scratched the surface of that, right? There's just so much more. And yeah, we need like a week-long <clears throat> workshop. Yeah, I, but I really think there's a lot to, for me personally, just to like to think about, to process, and to pray about, and, and to really like think that through. Yeah. Um, the word, one of the words that stuck out to me was contagious. Like that word has been a buzzword, right, these last couple of years for sure. And Man, if anything's going to be contagious, we don't want it to be anxiety, right? Like, we don't want to be the person that's giving others anxiety. Like, there's so much more that God is doing for us in our lives that we can give, that we want to be. Like, we want peace and joy to be contagious. And so, yeah. definitely, I mean, I don't want to be a person that gives everyone anxiety. So, You have a bald and beautiful head. Is it glaring? No, it? it's great. <laughs> you have the perfect head for it. So Christy's been anxious about her head, and I've yeah, been like, I have been a little anxious own it, <laughs> <laughs> step into it. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. What a, what a blessing it was today. Um, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is the inner critic. How many of your inner critic resembles maybe your mom and dad's face, maybe a combo of both? It's kind of like something that, that really affects us. A lot of times we have that little person sitting on the shoulder, and it's some of the things our mom and dad told us, um, and they meant good, went, meant good by it. Um, but some of that inner critic is the thing. I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, a couple years ago where he was talking about, you know, you just have to sit quiet and listen to yourself. And I was like, man, you are your voice and your inner critic's voice is the loudest voice. And Scripture tells us to listen to the still, small voice of the Father. And if we can stop and we can listen, and, and as Steve said, relegate it, the inner critic to the, to the basement, um, whatever its name is, uh, listening to the small, still voice of the Father can actually get us going. So there you go. Put that on your phone. And uh, remember this week to 
not listen to that inner critic, but listen to the voice of the Father, uh, the loving voice of the Father. Great thought to the prayer at the end, um, God, I believe this, that you say I am. You know, but that, that's hard, though. Like, yeah. I don't oh, know if that is. was, like, super easy for everybody, but, no. like, for me, it was like, oh, gosh, like, to, yeah. like, the self-evaluation is, is a difficult yeah. thing. And, and so mm-hmm. I challenge you guys to, to try that this week to really do some hard work in that. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Remember, Bethel, we exist to love and lead one another, to find and follow Jesus. Make sure you go grab it. a book from Steve in the lobby. They're limited, all right? So go say hi, grab a book. Love you guys. Take care.